Music Respawn. I'm Kate Remington catching up with Gary Scheiman. It's always, always fun to have a chance to talk with you. Thank you, Kate. It's really good to chat with you again. Uh, we've talked a few times about you know various games that you've worked on, and this time it's about Forspoken. And I, have, I want to say just right up front, I absolutely love this soundtrack. I've been listening to it kind of on repeat because it's just so lush and lyrical and romantic, and it must have been just an absolute blast to work on. It really was. You know, so many of my scores are pretty dark and scary. <laughs> Not everyone, but uh, there's been some ex- exemptions, you know, or different, um, like Torn and um, yeah. whatever. But this one really has emotional content. The story has emotional content. And therefore, the the it gave me the opportunity to write some beautiful stuff. And there's certainly plenty of combat and action. I wrote an hour of combat music. <laughs> uh, so there's plenty of that. And But even that is tonal in this. And, you know, it's not some I've written, you know, for Dante's Inferno and Bioshock games, and they're pretty dark and, and intense and driving and very dissonant. And these were, this is more of a fantasy game. And it, it you know, it's one of the cool things about scoring, um, anything really but games especially for me anyways because i'm asked to do all these really different styles and um uh really big and and interesting um musical musical scores and i i love it i mean that's just what makes it interesting i I never wanted to be a concert composer Probably because I could, I knew I'd never make a living <laughs> for one thing. <laughs> that was that, of course. So, uh, but but I've always you know loved scores, and of course I started with film and TV. And so yeah, Forspoken definitely has um, a, a really interesting story, which which has a very emotional content to it, and it gave me some really cool opportunities. Yeah, I, and I want to just dive in and really, you know, peek under the hood to, to hear how you put the score together. I'll set the story up just a little, little bit with trying not to do any spoilers, but Frey, this young woman in New York City who's kind of hit rock bottom, um, sees a, a shiny object through a window and hops down and gets into the building and slips it on her arm, and all of a sudden, she's transported into this incredible world, Athea, and this bracelet cuff talks to her. He's like the interpreter of this of this world, and he, he helps her through the story, and he helps her figure out how to save Athea. And how did the developers spin this to you to kind of reel you in and, and to pique your interest? Well, they, they provided a script. Mm. Mm. So that was one of the first things I received, and that that's sort of the map, you know, the story <laughs> the story map. Obviously, games don't father, follow the same linear uh, concept that a film does, but this one has a story, and it's it's an inc- integral part of the gaming experience. So, um, yeah, I started with the script and and some art, which is very typical. And, uh, and then as soon as possible, some gameplay footage. That's generally what you score to in big AAA games because I don't want to let the game... You, I mean, I'm a, what's called a contracted composer for those who are not familiar with that term. It just means I'm not an employee of Luminous Games who made, the, who made this, uh, who made Forspoken. So I'm external to the company and there and I live in LA and of course it's a Japanese company uh, part of Square Enix umbrella and so they're they don't want and this has been true of every AAA game I've worked on 
they don't want to let the game out for anybody to play the game to play various builds a build is a working a, a contemporary working version of the game a build so they so what they do instead is they provide you of course you're having conversations with them you're looking at artwork you're reading scripts but they're also playing the game at the at their studio and doing video capture somebody uh, of, a, of a portion of the game that you're going to be scoring a section of the game so I lock that up to my software here, my music software called a DAW, usually digital audio workstation. And I write music knowing, well, if it's gameplay music, I know that it's not locked picture. If it is what's called a cinematic or a cutscene, then of course it's locked to picture just as it would be in a film or television show. And you, you know, you just take it one cue at a time. <laughs> you go, okay, here's, here's what I need. Here's what's going on. This is, you know, and then, and you, and you, you know, inspire yourself. Um, it, my, my main inspiration is the deadline. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's got to be done. I got to finish, you know, and then, well, look, um, I was just reading something about chess players and chess players sit and they concentrate and they use like 6,000 calories a day just thinking Wow. It, with little, just moving little chess pieces around. Okay, so it, focus is is a very is very important, and of course, the deadline gives you the inspiration or the uh, you know oh, the inspiration like they're going to fire me if I don't if I don't write anything. <laughs> so that's inspiration or whatever, and uh, and so you start thinking once you once you deeply immerse yourself in something you need to do, ideas start to come. You know, you just start, you even even like uh, some small idea can then evolve into something quite elaborate.
Well, it just seems like, I don't know, magic or a really special gift to me that you can sort of synthesize all the materials that the studio sends you, the script and the concept art and, you know, a vertical slice or a cut scene and pull from that musical ideas. And I know this is kind of like game composing 101 and you probably talked to this, uh, talked about this with your students. But at this point, have you developed any kind of shortcuts so that you can really internalize what they've sent you and, and start generating ideas? Well, I don't have the disadvantage that perhaps someone who has never scored a game has, where you're also struggling with the technical issues. And, and some of the, some are not so difficult. Just writing a looping piece of music is not terribly complex. I mean, think of classical music, the repeat sign in a trio or something. So that's not, but any of the other aspects of it. And also, if, if you're a film and television composer, and all of a sudden, for the first time, you're just being asked to write like two or three minutes of music for here's the scenario, here's what's going on. Now write something, but there, and, and you can even have some visual reference, but there, you're not locked picture. All of a sudden you're sort of uh, cut loose and you know, you're, the ship is smooth sailing. You better know how to put, pull the sails down and command, you know, sit at the rudder and go in a direction. And I think that could be a, that might be difficult for some. Um, composers, others probably not. Uh, but if, I know when I first started doing Destroy All Humans back in 2004, it was like my first real. You know, I'd done some games in the 90s, but it was like it was like it was it was new. And I was writing these three minute combat cues, and I going, I can go anywhere. Obviously, within the the style and the st of the game, but it's like musically, I wasn't hitting anything. And in fact, if you if you think you're hitting something, you don't understand what you're writing for. And you can if you have like big dramatic uh, crescendos that don't that build to somewhere, and you're kind of perhaps even um, confusing the player because they're going to start. The music affects the player, and and if there's and if there's something that suggests something is building to something, and and yet there's no visual reference for it or there's no it has nothing to do with what you're seeing on on screen it that could actually be distracting which is not what we want to do right and also you, you don't want to give too much away to the player either like have the music get ahead of of the game and alert them that you know there's going to be enemies any second now yes absolutely and if you want to do that there's ways of putting in stingers which is a separate audio file that builds to something. So there's ways to do that, but that, but that needs to be for a specific reason. So yeah, there's all these rules. So, so I didn't have to, I don't have to now, I don't have to deal with any of that because I'm very familiar with how game music works. Every now and then they throw something new at me, like they asked me to do something that I had never done from a technical standpoint, but it's, it's usually not that terribly difficult at least i'm just so used to it perhaps now it's it's not a challenge for me um so so that's so that's one thing i don't have to worry about and you know i mean i it's always you know writing music is always when i, I know when i first start a project i go oh man i think i forgot how to write music <laughs> I don't know what i'm doing anymore you know and then you get into it and then all of a sudden oh yeah it's coming back so you know it it it's always sort of a new task, and yet it's also a familiar task. I don't, I don't know if that makes any sense. It's sort of a 
contradiction. Well, well, I, it's it, it's new because it's a new game, probably, and it's but it's familiar because you've done it before, and so I, I it's been interesting talking with your colleagues because everybody gets started in a different way. I mean, Grant Kirkhope told me recently that he'll send like a thirty second part of a cue to make sure that he's on the right track, and then Gareth Coker writes a whole suite of of themes and music and that could be you know six or eight minutes long <laughs> so i'm just kind of wondering how you get started and then the kind of guidance you need from the developers so that you know you're on the right track well if you're it depends on what you're specifically doing so if you're working on a a new track perhaps you've already established a stop of the game and, and everyone's on board with it and you're doing sort of like a new queue and I wonder if this is the right direction. I might send a cue only 30 or 40 or 50 seconds. Going, Does this feel right for this? You know, especially if you have a good relationship with your audio director or the music director, whoever it is. And they can be, yeah, that feels great. Or, you know what? It's a little off because of this X, Y, and Z. And then you get some feedback and you don't kind of waste the entire day or two days writing a piece of music that is not going to fit for whatever reason. Um, what Gareth, I think, might be talking about is when he just first is getting started and he's like sort of just all these ideas. What about this and this? And I'm, I've got to express eight minutes. Eight minutes feels, I, I probably wouldn't do that, but I, I certainly would spend, try different ideas for themes, you know, and maybe do a two minutes here or one minute there or three, whatever, and and throw things at him as I'm going. Goes, this feel right? Does this feel right? You know, so you have to. You also have to be thoughtful. You have to consider who you're working for, because there are people who, if you like, send them stuff and it's like really wrong, they'll, they'll get nervous. <laughs> Ooh, we made, <laughs> did we hired the wrong person? You know, so you have to be aware of that. And and so, but others are like you've worked with them before and they know your process. I remember the first queue I did for a game called Dante's Inferno, and uh, it was totally wrong. It was just so completely wrong, and uh, and yet, you know, it, it was okay. And then, the, and then I went, I got it, and I came up with a theme that that became that was right for the game. So you know, it's it's you also so you have to kind of have the experience to gauge who your who your interlocutor is to use a, a word, you know, the people you're working with. I'm wondering, you mentioned that one of the really appealing things about working on this project was that um, you got to work with your good friend, Bear McCreary. So how did you guys, um, how were you able to divvy up, you know, who did what? Okay, so just how, how Bear and I got involved together. So we were, we were both with Craft Angle Management. That's our, our um, agents. I'm no longer with Craft Angle Management, with Defiant Management right now. Uh, but uh, we were literally luminous, the company, the developer, reached out to Craft Angle and said, we're interested in Gary Scheinman and Bear McCreary. We're not, we're, we're thinking about bo both of them. And, and so she, you know, my agent, Sarah, called and said, told me that. So, you know, it, there was some back and forth. But as it has, as it happened, serendipitously, I had met with uh Bear and I've known him for a long time and we're friends. Um, we had met at GDC uh, to have coffee and we talked about, you know, it'd be kind of cool to work together on something. So when this came about, I said to my agent, well, what if we both did it? That might be, a, this is a, we, we, Bear and I have been talking about doing this and she knew that. She goes, that's intriguing. Let me 
present that. So she did, and they were delighted. They loved that idea. Uh, Bear did did not have the time. He was busy with other stuff. So he wrote some themes that were really wonderful. And then I I basically wrote you know the score, and I used his themes. I I wrote some themes as well, and I used my themes. And so that was you know he he was involved in the beginning, and we talked and we exchanged ideas and sent stuff back and forth and then um he went his he went on his way to do other things and i continued writing this music which was a, a lot of music two and a half hours so wow <laughs> that is that is a massive amount of music my gosh uh, what what are some of the things that you think a, a, a fantasy game what are some of the musical ideas or sounds that that the soundtrack has to have to really you know kind of be part of that fantasy world well it obviously it's it's specific to a specific fantasy world which mm-hmm. you're responding to what you're writing for um it, we decided that tonality that the, there was wasn't going to be a really dark and dissonant score and uh, and that it needed you know sort of a tonal um, but I think a complex, somewhat complex tonal um, um, palette with, you know, triad, triadic, but with lots of extensions and, you know, minor ninths and tritones, thirteenths, you know, and other mm-hmm. notes and sevenths, which made the harmonies really interesting and complex, especially during the combat cues. And there's still even, a, there's a few clusters here and there because it made sense. But mostly, it's it's tonal, and you know we had they gave us uh, the budget to record with an orchestra. They wanted an orchestral approach with with a synth. Though we decided synths would be a part and, and a really interesting part of the score, and also we I, I we hired a choir, and uh, we yeah. had this wonderful singer, India Carney, who was sort of the oh, voice yeah, of Frey. Yeah, she's amazing. Yeah, she's got a lovely voice. She's lovely, great to work with. So she she really um, brought a lot to the table as well.
So it was just, you know, finding the, the finding the right tone. And obviously, you know, my, my joke about this is I can write anything I want as long as they like it, you know, <laughs> which of course is a truism by its very nature. So, you know, you are constantly sending them music that you mock up with your software and they're listening and, and reacting to it and giving you response. And, uh, it, but it went, it went pretty smoothly once. And that this is typically the case. My experience is that once you find the right approach and they're on board, then it's just writing each cue and the challenges, but it's, but they're, they're loving it, you know, and then that was the case here. Well, you mentioned that when you first were starting to put together the instrumentation, you used uh, harp samples, and they were good. They sounded okay, but there was something missing, and you decided that you really needed a, a live harpist, too. And maybe you could talk about, you know, when that light bulb moment happened that you realized you needed a, a real live harpist. Yeah, I had... So before I went to... Um, to Nashville, we recorded in Nashville. I was going to record in LA, but because of COVID restrictions, that was literally going to add forty or fifty thousand dollars to the budget. And because we couldn't record the strings at the same time as the brass, so it meant you know every time you recorded at Box, it cost fifteen thousand dollars. So add four, add fifteen times four, and guess what? That's a lot of money. You know, that's like sixty k. <laughs> so nashville did not have those restrictions california had its own restrictions and nash and tennessee had its restrictions so but i had never recorded in tennessee so i recorded remotely one three-hour session some of the cues and it went really well the harp i was not particularly happy with the harp and i thought you know what my sampled harp is fine uh, I, you know and then i you know as i was writing the score there was a lot of i just harp just became an important instrument in my in the way i wrote the score it just was in almost every cue not every cue but almost mm -hmm. and then so i just said we'll live with it and then we got back and we and dan my engineer dan blessinger did a few mock-ups for me of the orchestra and i go you know this the harp sounds crappy and so <laughs> i brought in i brought in one of my favorite harpists harpist gail levant mm -hmm. into the studio to replace my sampled harp and of course she did a beautiful job. So that was, it was nice. And that was, that was a smart move. And you know, it, it wasn't that expensive. It's it, an orchestra is really expensive. One person at a time is not terribly expensive in the scheme of things in a game like this. So that turned out to be a good choice. Well, how familiar are you with writing for a harp or did you and Gail just kind of work through the, you know, giving you giving her some ideas for, for what you wanted, or did you actually give her the music note for note? Oh yeah, I, I wrote out every note. I didn't have her improvise anything. It was it was very written out. Um, now the thing that you realize, and that you, we we composers get lazy in the sense that when we play a harp, a sampled harp on a keyboard, you can do anything, <laughs> but a real harpist cannot because they have seven um, notes per octave and they have pedals. But I was familiar with all that. So I had to review my harp parts uh, in light of that and make sure that they were all working. And, and so, you know, and some of that is just using enharmonics um, and then also working out the glisses, etc. Now, the glisses usually just, I'll just say, you know, um, a gliss and, I'll, and I, maybe I'll, I'll tell her which notes to play in the gliss or I'll just say, you know, 
D flat minor or something, and she can nail it, you know. So, are you a harp? Are you a harpist? No, I was a piano. I was a pianist in college. Okay, I somehow have a memory of talking about harp with you before, but I'm I'm familiar with how to write for harp. I I studied legit, you know, orchestration here at, at USC <laughs> actually, um, yeah. I, where I teach now for the scoring for video games class. Um, so yeah, so it was it was not a challenge for me to to write for harp. Although I had to review my sample parts because you can you can do anything, and there are things there are restrictions. There are things you can't just can't do with one harp. It's very very common for concert composers to write for two harps in the past, just so they could avoid those issues uh, with with um, pedal change pedal changes that are too fast to to perform. So they'll have two harpists and that'll fix fix it. Yeah, that's really cool. Well, plus, since you've worked with her before, um, you know, you know what her special talents are and she kind of knows what your music is maybe going to be like. And so that would probably help you guys get to the right, you know, meeting point at the, you know, very quickly, too. So. Yeah. And we were in a really nice studio that had natural, beautiful um reverb reflections that i love we didn't use any reverb on it it was it was reverby enough in the room and wow. it was it was really nice yeah i'll bet i i love the fact that you know the the world of athea it's it doesn't really have a specific time or era but there are like little tells you know it's it's not a new time it's maybe medieval maybe you know early 18th century and so one of the instruments that you used was a viola da gamba which was a really cool choice. So maybe you could talk a little bit about why why you chose that. I you know um, I just thought it had a cool sound. It, it's it you know it, to be honest with you that was a sample. There's mm -hmm. a really good sample library that uh, that both Bear and I used that sounded terrific. So I, I didn't see any need to to replace that, and uh, it just felt like a really cool choice and had sort of an ancient ambience or sound to it, you know, that, and, and, and it just seemed to, to fit, uh, that world. And it's just, it's kind of, sometimes it's just intuitive to go, yeah, that sounds cool. That's really nice. You know, it may not be any deep philosophy behind it, but other than that's, that's cool. And, and as you point out, Viola de Gamba is, you know, predecessor of, of, um, the viola and other, you know, an older string instrument, which is generally not used in modern orchestras unless for very specific reasons. Yeah, and it's kind of neat because, you know, you could, it, I can visualize it going into Sepal, which is like the, the main city, the hub of, of this world, Athea, and just sort of seeing somebody play one in the background in like a corner of one of those halls or on a street corner or something. <laughs> so There's also a moment in the game where there's a street singer and um, so I wrote some uh, also using samples of, of like you know lutes and things like that to accompany his uh, performance well that's really neat I mean it sounds like this whole project gave you a chance to just really stretch out and do the kinds of things that you really think are fun and that you really enjoy yeah with the resources of having like a week with an orchestra which is yeah. fantastic and then a uh, a uh, full day with the choir uh, here in town in LA uh, because I just I thought and I and I think I'm correct that LA has better choirs 
but but Nashville's gotten the Nashville Orchestra's gotten really good. I have to say, they really. I was delighted. It was it was like I, I I love recording with an orchestra, and it was like kind of I was in Nirvana that week. I was just like really happy, <laughs> eating very spicy chicken, and uh, <laughs> and uh, and even our hotel was cool. Like uh, it was a Holiday Inn. It could I mean that hotel could be anywhere in the United States, and yet it had a dining area with with a little stage in it and three, um, and and you know three spots for someone to perform. And at night they would have country singers come in and they were like really good. So like we'd record all day and then we'd have a beer and listen to really good country singers, you know, croon away. So it was Wow. Cool. So did you have like a little notebook and you're like took, took, took down names just in case you need them for like the next score? <laughs> no, I, you know, I should, probably should have because some of them were really good. I mean, some of the lyrics were really clever and wonderful. So yeah. Um, that, and that town is really a music town. And, mm-hmm. and so... It was cool. Yeah, it sounds like a really fun environment. And, you know, it's just a lot of great energy there, which is so cool. And speaking of great energy, the that cue that you wrote for the first part of the world where Frey arrives, um, Janoon, is so filled with life and like forward motion. And it just it just makes you want to run and go and explore. And and I'm kind of wondering, you know, what were some of the, uh, the ideas that you – um, we're using to give uh, Janoon kind of its own musical identity. Yeah, that's a that's a, an area of a, a place in the game, and they provided obvious. Um, it, it's it's Frey. There's these moments in the game where Frey is traveling from one like Sapal to some adventure or battle or some some challenge that she has, and so there's these sort of long running you know sprints or whatever through these this world. And so it was an opportunity to for the music to do something. It, it wasn't, they didn't really want something. Like at times there were some cues like that, that they wanted a sense like you're going into a very dangerous place, you know, some anxiety. But at other times, like Janoon, it was an opportunity to, to sort of re- respond to the beauty that you're seeing and reflect it in the music and just make make that journey more interesting for the player, you know. And so Janoon was was one of those sort of beautiful environments. And that was just my reaction to the world as I saw it, you know. Yeah, I just, I kind of just left the screen there, let Frey just stand there for a while so I could like soak in the music because it's such a beautiful fit with the landscape.
you know, you, you've mentioned combat music, and we haven't ever had a chance to talk about how you think about combat music because of the games that you and I have talked about, Metamorphosis and Torn. And so how how do you, uh, uh, you know, um, plan out combat music, whether it's for a boss battle or, you know, some some of the boss's minions? Yeah, combat music is such a big part of a lot of gaming. I mean, obviously, there's so many different types of games, but a lot of the AAA games, let's face it, do have big action sequences and combat involved. And I remember when I first had to write a lot of combat music for games, I, I, I never, I remember when I was scoring films and TV, I never felt that confident in my combat and action music. I always like, oh man, I've got to write one. Oh, I'm, I'm anxious, you know. And so all of a sudden in Destroy All Humans, I was writing like, you know, 40, 50 minutes of it. So it was kind of a sink or swim moment for me. And since then, I've, I've gotten good at writing combat music. I feel like I have. Uh, and so, you, you know, there's many ways to write it. It, it depends on the, uh, the specific moment. You want to reflect what's going on, the intensity. You're looking at the intensity because if, if for instance, you're, if combat music and it's, it's too intense, it, it almost looks ridiculous. You know, imagine some big, massive combat queue and you're just fighting like one one guy or something like that, one orc or something. It, and it looks ridiculous. It's almost like a joke. So you, it has to properly reflect that. And, and very often, combat music is written in, in layers, meaning there's different intensities based upon whether you're engaging with lots of uh, enemy or less or hiding, getting away from the combat, etc. So I always start with the most intense layer. I, there's been exceptions, but that's usually the case. And um, I, you know, ostinatos, repeated ostinatos are pretty useful, you know? Uh, and so it's often where I start is like finding some interesting accompaniment, something that, that captures the intensity and drive of the moment, feels right. But, um, you know, that's that feels like a really good starting place for me and writing some really intense driving ostinato, you know, uh, accompaniment. And then I start to add things to it, some melodic ideas. If sometimes you don't use melody in combat, sometimes you do. Um, but, you know, it, it, that can be really cool to add melody and then color it with orchestration and percussion adding. And it's, you sort, it's sort of like building almost like a montage in a way. You're building on it and adding. And then, and then you, you, you know, as I write it, I'm mocking it up in my software. So I'm hearing it and I'm feeling, yeah, does this work? I'm looking at it against picture, against those gameplay footage that have been provided. And is it working? And and then you, you know, you write a section and then you go back to the beginning and kind of play up to it and then it stops. You go, well, what comes next, you know? And then you just, uh, you, you, that, you just keep challenging yourself to find that next section. You know, and sometimes it, it's you, you can repeat a section, but you have to be cautious about repetition in video game music, because if it's a looping cue, it's already repeating. So it's sort of like a common ABA um, uh, structure is in some ways counterproductive in game music because it, it, it's A, B, A, A, B, A, A, if you think about it, because it's loop off, it, not, it's not always, but most of the time it is looping, you know? So you're getting a lot of really, of repetition. Too much repetition 
is is boring, you know, to the player. So it's in a way it's almost through composed. You can repeat certain things, but if you repeat them, you might might want to alter them. You might want to modulate, change keys. You might want to add a different melody. You might want to orchestrate it differently. So th those are all possibilities. There's many. There's a lot of ideas and ways to um, to write a good action and combat music. Actually, I've, I've over the years I've developed a whole um, talk or lecture, shall we say, mm -hmm. on how to write combat music, and my students find it helpful. I would imagine, yeah. <laughs> well, because one of the things that, I mean, there are a lot of directions you can go in, but I would imagine it kind of helps to see gameplay with the boss so that you can see how, how they move and what their attacks are and that kind of thing and then incorporate that into the music. Yes, absolutely. And for instance, there is one um, boss battle, shall we say, that Frey has and her opponent gets occasionally gets really angry so i created like this synthesized layer like really sort of that totally fits the entire cue so it's like a layer that are harmonically and melodically fits but it has this sort of edgy synth vibe and a very edgy synth vibe and so whenever this you know opponent this boss gets really angry they can crossfade and, and or really just add its additive and add this sound and it really sort of enhances this rage. And it can happen anytime because the, the, the entire music cue, the original cue is, um, has this layer that can just come in at any time, crossfade in and bring it in and capture the, that new level of intensity that is, uh, you can see visually, visually see, you know, referenced.
Yeah. I mean, it's it's so interesting as a player to think about boss battle music because it it's kind of serves a dual purpose. It it defines the boss and, you know, their minions, they most of the time they send out minions too. But it also I think needs to give the player sort of confidence like, you know, I I can deal with this. I can take this take this boss down. And so I don't know if that's how you think about it too. Well, of course the player always learns that there's always training exercises at, at the beginning of the game where you learn how to combat so there's usually some that they're, they're not going to give you the toughest boss at the top of course <laughs> or you just you stop playing the game they're i can't get back can't beat the boss you know <laughs> so you have to learn the game's mechanics and how to use the powers that fray and her powers keep intensified because as she defeats certain enemies she gains their powers and so that's pretty cool and you keep having more and more fun with these different um, earned powers so and so that so you have these experiences uh, um, early in the game of fighting these less intense little creatures and monsters whatever and you build up to your, your abilities and skills until you can have these just massive you know earth-shattering epic combat experiences you know yeah, it's and one of the things that I think is really interesting, and I think games have gotten a lot better and a lot more sophisticated at letting the player know when the combat's over. It doesn't just stop anymore. And so uh, how do you incorporate like a tidy ending <laughs> into the boss battle? Well, you can write what, what there is something we call an outro. We have an intro and there's <laughs> also something, there are end tags that can be called. But it, an outro is kind of a good made-up word. I'd never heard of it until I started scoring video games. But it's just—it's basically—it's a, a short piece of music that takes you out of the combat and action and gives you sort of a um, an ending to the cue, uh, a musical ending that feels that feels right. So that's that's what that that can be a useful tool. Sometimes they just stop the music. <laughs> so that, that's, that is what they do uh, and other times it, they have this more elegant solution which is to have it come out and it feels very much more like you know the player's unique experience has been scored and mm. I think that is cool you know I think players like that you know so th there are challenges with that if, if the music is tonal uh, then your ending has to match the tonality and that the music is modulating around. So you have to think about those issues and you might have a couple of endings or you might have a, a non-tonal ending that's maybe just sort of percussive or something. And then of course that could fit anywhere. You know what the tempo is. Um, and you can also, the game, these games have this very sophisticated middleware, audio middleware that can basically be programmed. So you can say, okay, you defeat the boss here, now the game knows and it informs this middleware, but the middleware say, okay, now play, here's like three or four exits, you know, here's where the place is, you know, so play another bar and a half and then go out, you know, or it can say, wait, you know, to the to a downbeat of a bar, something like that to make it more musical as opposed to just like right on the end of a beat, you know, cutting to the, the outro to do it in a more musical way to like waiting for a downbeat at the next bar or something. Yeah, it's just amazing how incredibly sophisticated 
all of these tools have gotten through the years. And then it's great. It must be just so much fun to be able to take advantage of them. Yeah, it is. It, it really, you know, it really does make you be able to score as, as close as possible. You know, you can overscore. This is something that people might not think of initially, but if I think if the music is too interactive, that it actually can distract the player. So imagine if the player is um, is going up a series of stairs. And so if you decide, okay, every stair will be a different note in a major scale or something. Well, what's going to happen is the player's going to start playing, going up and down the stairs, playing the scale. Now, if it's a music game, that's great. If it's not, you're distracting the player. So mm-hmm. if the music is too interactive, the the player will start playing the score, you know, <laughs> and distra- and distract you from your most, which, you know, what the developer wants is you to focus on the game as opposed to being distracted by really interactive music. So that's so there's a there's a balance I think between interactivity and creativity as well because sometimes if music is so interactive, you're sort of boxed in to you know, sometimes they call it cellular music where you're writing these short little two-bar phrases or four-bar phrases or whatever they can go to any of nine. So you're so you're so um, you're so immersed in the interactivity that it does affect creativity because it's it's your you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, and you're in danger of kind of losing the musicality of it too, and kind of like the story arc of the music. And exactly, exactly. So I I think that there's a balance be- between some interactivity which really does score the player's experience and then you know enough freedom to be creative well this game forspoken just has so many stunning emotional cutscenes, and i'm wondering if there are moments in the game i mean i'm sure there are where you feel like your music just like really nailed it and if you'd like to talk about any of those well, I think there's a cue. I think it's it's called For the Departed. It, it towards the end of the game. It's that's that's quite emotional visually, and I think the music really underscores that nicely.
cute. There's a couple of cues with uh, Frey and her cat. And I love cats. We have a cat. So mm-hmm. that was, there was, but it's very emotional because she's sort of giving the cat away because oh, her yeah. situation is so bad that she can't take care of the cat anymore. But it's, so I thought I, I, those were sort of like fun and, and beautiful. And then there's some really kind of cool cutscenes with her and Athia and meeting different characters like Joe Hetty and you know, the father of uh, the, the main, her main counterpart. And I'm forgetting his name. He had, um, Break Bob, Break Bob oh, right. yeah. character. So I wrote a kind of a fun theme for him because Break Bob is like goes in and out of lucidity, and mm-hmm. so the music. So he had a noble past. He was he was a great, he was a great man and and a noble and and wise man, but his he spent all this time in in this um, dark and scary part, uh, this sort of infected part of the world that has taken over uh, and his mind is gone. Mm. But he's so, it, it, so the music has this um, bifurcated quality of like playing him when he has these lucid moments and he's communicating and all of a sudden then he goes off on these sort of flights. It's almost like if you've had a relative that has dementia, you could, mm, you could yeah. this is like a guy with dementia really, you know? <laughs> so it's like making sense. Hey, I remember when we, when I took you down to the, river and we talked and then all of a sudden they're like often like you know who are you i don't know who you are <laughs> why are you here you know that's so so he is like that so that's kind of a that was kind of a fun cue to write so the music has this confused um aspect and then this noble theme so that was that's that was cool stuff to write Well, it sounds like Athea was just a fun world to be in. 
and a, a creatively really rich world for you to spend some time in. Yeah, I wouldn't want to go there in real life, however, because it's pretty scary. <laughs> I think I'll I'll stay in Clover City here in Los Angeles. Um, but yeah, no, it is. It is a great place to visit in, in a game. It, it really is. It's got surprises and and there is some really interesting surprises, very emotional surprises. In the game. Mm-hmm. Well, what are the plans for the soundtrack? I mean, it's it looks like it's available now on the Square Enix website. But have you? Yeah, it's going to come. It's going. It's coming. It is coming uh, to to the uh, the U.S. soon. Um, and I'm sorry about the delay to everybody who's interested. It's just that uh, this is how Square Enix wanted to release the score so it's available now actually in japan i believe but will be available soon the entire score here in uh, in the u.s oh that's awesome well gary it has been so much fun to talk with you about this i just really enjoyed our conversation so thank you so much thank you kate it was really a pleasure talking to you about it i love your enthusiasm and joy of music all that is so cool so thanks for inviting me 